1: When it comes to the criminal trials facing Donald Trump, timing is everything, specifically more time. And by taking up his claim of presidential immunity, Trump's friends on the Supreme Court just threw him a major lifeline in the form of a delay. In these big moments involving the courts and the rule of law, there is no one I like talking to more than Congressman Jamie Raskin. Lucky for us, he's here in studio and he's coming up first. Plus, we'll ask the law firm of Weissman and Katiel how all of this might impact the classified documents case down in Florida. Also today, dueling visits at the southern border as the former president fires up the fear machine. I'm going to ask Beto O'Rourke what Democrats should be doing about it. And later, Mitch McConnell announces he'll leave his leadership post later this year. We'll take a deep dive into his legacy and the Frankenstein monster he helped create. in the years since Donald Trump's third Supreme Court nominee was confirmed just weeks before the 2020 election, there has been this big question hanging out there. Will they help him? And if so, when will they help him? Well, this week, the Supreme Court announced they were taking up Trump's absurd claim of presidential immunity. And in turn, they granted him the thing he covets the most—more time. Because when you're running for president to stay out of prison, you sure don't want to stand trial before Election Day. And by taking up this case, the court has now raised the real prospect that he may not. I mean, for reasons that remain completely unclear, they will not even hear oral arguments until a full seven weeks from now. So Trump's election interference trial that at one point, by the way, was scheduled to start tomorrow, is now being punted months down the calendar. And yes, I know that the wheels of justice can move slowly. I have made this point myself many times. But guess what? The Supreme Court can move very quickly when it wants to. I'm gonna give you a few examples. Let's take Bush v. Gore in 2000. The court decided the election in three days. And you don't need to look even that far back for more examples. This very court, same members of the court this very year, moved quickly in a separate case related to Trump when he asked these same justices to take up the Colorado case regarding his ballot eligibility. They agreed two days later and scheduled arguments for the following month. That's downright speedy, if I do say so. And they had chances to move with the similar urgency here, even more so. They could have taken up this issue back in December when Jack Smith urged them to consider his emergency appeal and keep the trial on schedule. But of course, they didn't. They waited until this week to announce they would take up the case, and they will wait until late April to even hear the oral arguments. They know exactly what this means for the trial schedule. They have a calendar, and they did it anyway. So the Supreme Court might claim they are not in the political business, but they just knowingly put the country in a position where people might not know if they are voting for a convicted criminal on Election Day. If that's not injecting yourself into politics, I'm not really sure what is. Now, we don't know for certain that there won't be a trial before November. There could be. There's a very real chance that we could still see one, and we'll talk about that today. At the same time, we are also facing a harsh but important reality that it's important to call out. We cannot bet on the justice system protecting us from the day-one dictator. There is no magic wand, no mythical savior, no fanciful court remending here. And yes, it is true that if Trump does not stand trial before this election for the crime of trying to overturn the last one because of a court that he helped shape with three members, then that would be one of the great miscarriages of justice in the history of our country. But there's another extremely important thing to remember here. We all know what he did. There's no doubt about the basic facts in any of these cases, really. Like, we watched the insurrection he incited in the U.S. Capitol unfold on television. We saw the photos of the boxes of classified documents in his bathroom. We heard the tape of him on the phone asking the Georgia Secretary of State to find him votes. Even Trump's claim of presidential immunity tells us that he has no interest in disputing the facts. That's not his argument. It's never been, I didn't do it. It's always been, I did it, and I was allowed to. That's his argument. So while the American people deserve trials before election, they of course they do, we shouldn't need them in any of these cases to know what he did and to know the danger he poses to democracy and to our rights. Look, there are the people who are always going to vote for him, convictions or no convictions. That, there's no question about that. The question now is about the rest of us. The rest of us know what happened. The rest of us know what he did. The rest of us see what the choice is between these two candidates. We could still get a trial before November, but we might not. Either way, voters will have to defend our country on Election Day. Casting a ballot will be the most powerful antidote to the threat of Donald Trump. Joining me now is someone I love talking to about rule of law, courts, everything, Congressman Jamie Raskin. He led the second impeachment trial of Donald Trump. He is now the ranking Democrat on the House Oversight Committee. So I know you have a lot of thoughts on what transpired this week, but I just want to start just with—because I'm sure you've thought about this—it takes four justices to decide to take up a case— and when they take up a case, they don't have to take up cases. Of course, they decide to not take up plenty of cases all the time. They are sort of throwing out there the notion that this is an open question. What yeah. do you think about that?
2: This was an obvious case not to take up and just to let the D.C. Circuit Court ruling stand. It's a completely exhaustive and totally compelling decision saying that the claim that the president can escape criminal prosecution for criminal acts that he conducts in office is Utterly antithetical to everything that we know about our Constitution. We don't have a king here. We had a revolution against a king, and the Constitution is written so the president's main job is to take care that the laws are faithfully executed, not faithfully violated in his own interest.
1: And history tells us that, too. Now, I've been trying to figure this out. I don't know if you have an answer for us, but they could have decided back in December when Jack Smith asked them to to decide if they were going to take up this case. They could have decided then to do it or not. Why do you think they didn't if they really wanted to
2: pronounce on this complete banality, this totally obvious point, they could have taken it up in December and sent it back a day or two later. Right. Um, And at this point, I mean, I don't want to be crying over spilt milk, but they're going to hear it on April 22nd. I hope that we will get a decision from the court April 23rd or 24th, because as we saw in Bush versus Gore, they can move at Josh Hawley type speed when they want to get something done. And in Bush versus Gore, I think that they rendered their opinion the day after oral argument. And that's what America should expect here.
1: Now, there's one theory here that the reason it's been so delayed is that there is a dissent, that someone thinks that presidents are immune or more than one person. Do you think that on
2: this court? Well, what they did was they opened up the question to something much larger than Mm -hmm. what needs to be decided. The very specific question is if a president engages in insurrectionary activity in order to overthrow an election. He's lost by more than 7 million votes, 306 to 232 Mm. in the Electoral College. Is he immune from criminal prosecution for criminal acts undertaken in pursuit of that plan? Well, that's a very specific and clean question. And this court has always insisted uh, that it's a minimalist court. It wants to look at the most specific question. But here they opened it up to the far broader question of If the president engages in some actions that uh, lead to criminal prosecution, um, is he subject to them depending on the definition of what's an official act and what's not?
1: Now, these justices know what their powers are, right? They know the court schedule. They have the same calendar. Do you look at this court and think some of these justices may want to delay these trials?
2: Well, yeah, I mean, I think if you don't believe that you're too innocent to be let out of the house by yourself at this point. I mean, this is a court uh, driven by both Trump nominees and Bush nominees, and neither of those guys was elected with a popular vote majority. So we've got a Supreme Court that is representing the choices of minority presidents, um, and they have been driving very hard to overturn a whole series of precedence that America's come to take for granted, like Roe versus Wade. And we're still dealing with the tremendous aftershock of the Dobbs decision as America wakes up to the fact that it's right wing state legislators in a lot of states now who are deciding the destiny of women.
1: Yeah, I mean, activism has influence. There's no question about that it has influence. They're not free from influence. So I want to repeat this because I think it's so important. I'll talk about this later in the show, too. The Department of Justice 60-day rule does not prevent a trial from moving forward in September and October because this—he's already been indicted. Um, Judge Chukan, you know, we've all been watching her. She's going to be under tremendous pressure, of course, to decide if it should move forward. One, would you be comfortable with a trial moving forward in September and October if we get there? It is close to the election. And what do you think she will do?
2: Look, I think that the rule of law should proceed. Mm -hmm. If trials have been set, as there was a trial set for Monday, for tomorrow, they should proceed without totally unusual, indeed extraordinary intervention by the Supreme Court. Having said that, I don't want to build up the trial in D.C. to be, you know, the be-all and the end-all of this process. I mean, Donald Trump already owes more than a half billion dollars because he's been cooking the books and lying about the value of his properties in New York. He's already been found to be uh, responsible by unanimously by a jury of his peers for sexually assaulting, for raping. And then defaming someone. And then defaming the woman that he raped, repeatedly defaming her. So shouldn't that be enough? So, you know, I don't want to build it up like well, if we get this mm. decision, then America will be able to do the right thing. But without it, the, the American electorate will have to disregard everything we know about Donald Trump, who is, um, you know, a vicious self promoter and narcissist and somebody who is constantly in spectacular disrespect of the rule of law. And he has no program for the country other than to get him and his family back into office so they can revive their process of enriching themselves.
1: This is also true and so important for people to hear what you just said, is that We know a lot about him already. He's done these things in broad daylight and he has already been convicted in some cases that should really make people question.
2: And i got to say, I've got friends on the Hill who say, you know, they don't want to see him uh, on trial six weeks or eight weeks before the election because he loves nothing better than to strike the pose of a martyr. You know, he's he's in all these prosecutions because of the offenses he's committed. But he would love to say, you know, look what's happened to me right before the. Do you
1: worry about that or you think let's just see where it is and they should have the ability to move forward if they're at that point?
2: I mean, it's hard to remember what it was like, but it would be nice to think about the rule of law as being something separate from the campaign process. And of course, Donald Trump has merged them in his inimitable way simply because he's a one man crime wave and there's so many crimes and so many civil torts and wrongful actions out there that his past is coming back to haunt him.
1: Yeah, no question. I mean, you know, part of Trump's desire to delay here, as you and I have talked about many times, is that he wants to get into office so he can end the trials or end end the the legal challenges against him by by using (laughs) any means possible. Do you worry that if these trials are delayed to the point— where he gets into office, it will incentivize him to stay in office even longer?
2: Sure. I mean, public office for him is just a get-out-of-jail-free card and bankruptcy protection. I mean, it's all about what's going to benefit him.
1: Yeah. So personally, to avoid jail, to avoid paying money, he could avoid that. I do want to turn to another topic here. There's plenty going on. You must be very tired because you have been doing a lot. Um, But your colleagues on the Oversight Committee, you know the ones I'm talking about. They brought in Hunter Biden this week for a closed door deposition after he said he would do it publicly. Now they want him to come back and do it publicly. It's all completely ludicrous. But this is just a week after we found out that their key witness has been receiving information mm-hmm. from a Russian from Russian sources. Well, the, I mean, the, Alexander
2: Smirnov started the whole thing. Yes, um, <clears throat> with this so called 1023 form, and so. <clears throat> He said that Hunter and Joe Biden got $10 million between them um, from Burisma in Ukraine. Now, uh, David Weiss, who's the U.S. attorney appointed by Donald Trump in uh, Delaware, who's now the special counsel in the Hunter Biden case, he is prosecuting and has indicted um, Smirnoff Smirnoff for lying to the FBI and constructing a false documentary record and— He is up to his neck with Russian intelligence. And the whole thing now has a very strong whiff of a Russian active measure intelligence operation.
1: your colleagues are barreling forward despite this. I mean, at a certain point, they're becoming Russian—unwittingly becoming Russian assets.
2: Well, after heralding this guy as— Um, their key star witness. Now they're saying, oh, he didn't have much to do with it. We've got a lot of other evidence. But right now we've got um, a potential Russian asset or agent in jail for making up lies and telling them to the U.S. government. We've got another of their star witnesses who is um, an accused uh, accomplice to Chinese intelligence Mm -hmm. Uh, who's on the lamb that the U.S. government is looking for. And every one of their star witnesses turns out to be either deeply suspect and entrenched in Russian or Chinese intelligence or just a buffoon like Tony Bobulinski. You
1: cannot make it up. It's a movie. Uh, Congressman Jamie Raskin, always a pleasure. Thank you so much for coming in. Great talking with you. And coming up, Judge Aileen Cannon said something in court on Friday that leads Andrew Weissman to believe she is biased or naive or both. The law firm of Weissman and Katiel is standing by to discuss the big news out of the classified documents case when we come back. Addie. Hey, did you know there's a little pink pill? Wait, a what? A little pink pill? Did you say a little pink pill? Yes, the little pink pill. You definitely need to know about this. Are you for real? Just to be clear, you're telling me there's a little pink pill? So the federal election case is not the only one in which Jack Smith is facing headwinds in the form of attempted delays. On Friday, Donald Donald Trump and Smith were both in federal court in Florida, where their respective teams clashed over whether the classified documents trial should be held before or after the November election. Of course, that's the case overseen by Judge Aileen Cannon, who is widely viewed as a Trump loyalist and has been rebuked twice By the 11th Circuit for rulings that were overly sympathetic to the former president. And while Cannon didn't circle a date on the calendar during Friday's hearing, she did drop some serious hints that she intends to delay Trump's trial. Among other things, she proactively brought up the DOJ's quote, 60-day rule, which prohibits the Department of Justice from taking action that could affect an upcoming election. Now, to be clear, that's an internal guideline that applies to criminal investigations and charging decisions, not trials. But I suspect you'll be hearing that argument from Trump loyalists over and over again in the coming months. Judge Cannon should know it's a moot point. But Smith's team still had to explain to her that they are in full compliance with their own department's policies. Basically, that's not a thing. Joining me now is our in-house law firm, Neil Katiel, is the former acting U.S. Solicitor General. Andrew Weissman is the former general counsel at the FBI and a senior member of special counsel Robert Mueller's team. And they're with us for two blocks today, which I'm thrilled by. OK, Andrew, I'm going to start with you. Let's start by just establishing. And I think it's so important for people to understand this. The 60-day rule in this case, is in this trial, is not a thing. Can you explain what the DOJ rule actually is? And also, your level of concern that Judge Cannon, who should know better— asked about it and raised it.
3: Sure. So there there are two issues with Judge Cannon raising it. First of all, it's an internal rule. It is not a law. It is not something that gives any rights to any defendant and Judge Cannon had been at the justice department. She knows that. So the idea that she raised it is you know, issue number one, that sort of red flag number one mm-hmm. as to why is she even raising something that is just internal department guidance. That de- guidance could be changed by Merrick Garland any day of the week. Second, the rule does not apply. Right. <laughs> um, you know, for anybody, anyone who has been in the Justice Department, this is such a red herring. This is why it is completely wrong. That rule is intended so that the Justice Department does not take action in a covert case that is suddenly overt shortly before an election. Why? Because you don't want to influence the election when that person, the candidate, doesn't have an opportunity to get to Mm -hmm. trial. They want their day in court to show that these allegations by the Justice Department are wrong. Why is that inapplicable here? These are overt allegations, where the Justice Department is actually asking for a day in court, so that the defendant has the opportunity to refute these um, allegations, I mean, it could not be more wrongheaded. So, issue number two for Judge Cannon is how she does not know that, as somebody who is in the Justice Department. Even if you just look at the rule, you know it does not apply here. So, those are two things that were really concerning about why she even raised this issue in a court of law.
1: And maybe she does know it as you raise. So, Mr. Neal. I mean, you've seen Cannon's actions. You also know very, very well the power of judges. How confident are you that the documents case will go to trial before November? I mean, there are other means of trying to delay and judges have power to do that.
4: So, first of all, just big picture, Jen, I think just Donald Trump had his best legal week in years and it's because of what we're talking about about Judge Cannon on the hearing on Friday, but also because of the Supreme Court agreeing right. to hear his January sixth immunity case with a really slow timeline to hear it. And as you started the show with, timing is everything. So mm-hmm. with respect to Judge Cannon, I mean this is a case that is really straightforward, but unfortunately so far she's forged a long and winding path toward it being re- you know resolved. And, you know, there's a reason why Donald Trump attacks every single judge in the country who's hearing his cases besides her, because so far she's been willing to bend the rule of law to help him out. Now, I I take the 60-day thing a little bit differently than Andrew. He's absolutely right on the substance of the rule. It doesn't apply at all. But sometimes judges ask those kinds of questions uh, just to make sure and the like. And, Mm -hmm. you know, maybe hope springs eternal. But my hope is... I'd love to see Judge Cannon do the right thing. After all, Donald Trump asked for an August trial date in this case well before the election last mm-hmm. week. Let's give him what he wants. You know, I was National Security Advisor at the Justice Department where I saw these kinds of cases. There's no reason for it to take longer. And sometimes judges defy expectations. Remember when Judge Cannon made those kind of crazy rulings last year in the case appointing a special master and the like? It went up to the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals and people said, oh, they're going to be hopelessly biased for Trump they rebuked her unanimously and I my hope is that something similar will happen here the judge cannon sets this for trial the American public deserve to know what happened with all these very highly classified stolen documents
1: I mean Neil we love a little hope on this show um, you know okay Andrew I have to ask I mean because the immunity conversation just feels like it's overlapping everywhere so the Washington Post Also, raised the alarming prospect to me, at least, that Judge Cannon could decide to hold up proceedings pending a Supreme Court decision on immunity, even though that appeal stems from an entirely different case. Help us understand could she do that? What do you think about the possibility of that?
3: Well, she could do it, but let me just make sure people understand why it would be so really insane. Not only are there all these issues about it shouldn't apply in the DC case, which deals with conduct by Uh, Trump when he was in office, when he was president. But here, the charges relate to conduct when he is out of office. So, his claim is that I was allowed to—I was legally allowed to take these documents to Mar-a-Lago. Of course, the charges are about what he did once they were in Mm Mar-a-Lago and he was no longer president. This is like somebody robbing a bank, using a gun, shooting the guard, and saying, but I legally had the gun. Uh
1: Uh-huh. Yeah, that's quite an analogy. I'm going to reuse that. Okay, Neil, Andrew, stick around where you are. Don't go anywhere. Don't turn off your cameras. Um, I have okay. a few, I have several more questions for you. We'll be right back after a quick break. With his appeal to the Supreme Court, Donald Trump is trying to put himself above the law, and his argument. That even a former president is immune from prosecution not only defies logic, it defies history, too. Back in 1974, President Gerald Ford made the difficult decision to pardon his predecessor, Richard Nixon, for any potential crimes arising from Watergate. Of course, by Trump's logic, Nixon would have already been immune from criminal prosecution, making that pardon totally unnecessary. So I guess Ford should have saved himself a little bit of a headache there. But the thing is... Ford issued that pardon precisely because presidents are not immune from criminal prosecution. And the text of the pardon made that view crystal clear. It says, quote, as a result of certain acts occurring before his resignation from the office of president, Richard Nixon has become liable to possible indictment and trial for offenses against the United States. Even as a former president, Nixon was still culpable for the crimes he committed while he was in office. So let's be real here. No president would ever need a pardon if they were entitled to the kind of immunity Trump is now claiming. And yet Trump himself once believed he would need one when he was facing criminal liability from Bob Mueller in 2018. Trump didn't claim he was immune. He claimed he could pardon himself.
4: On the pardon power, do you believe that you are above the law? No, 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 I'm not above the law. I
2: never want anybody to be above the law. But the pardons are a very positive thing for a president.
4: I think you see the way I'm using
1: them. And yes, I do have an absolute right to pardon myself. So it raises the question, why would Trump even consider a pardon for himself if he was already immune from prosecution? And we're back with Neil Katiel and Andrew Weissman. Andrew, I hope that didn't give you some trauma. I'm sure you remember that moment from 2018. But it, it certainly seems, just to bring us to the present day, like the whole immunity argument was contrived solely so Trump could evade justice. I mean, what does it say, in your view, about the court that they're considering it? It, it makes it an open question.
3: That's true. I think, though, that something that you said in the opening and Neil alluded to, the timeline that the court set makes it really clear to me that they took this case to delay the trial. And Mm -hmm. stay with me here, because I think there's sort of two things to keep an eye on. One is the timeline for deciding the sole issue that's before the Supreme Court, which is this immunity question. What is not before the court, what was not supposed to be before the court is the trial date. Mm -hmm. On the immunity issue, both parties should have an interest in having that decided as quickly as possible. The government, of course, because they have an interest in going to trial quickly and keeping the date that should have been tomorrow. And a defendant who's saying there should not even be criminal charges means every day that there are those pending criminal trials. He is suffering the opprobrium of a criminal case. So, both parties had an interest in deciding this quickly. So, why did the government Um, you know, say yes. And Donald Trump said, no, slow walk this. And the court agreed this is really a slow process. They could have taken the case, as you pointed out, with Jamie Raskin months ago. And so, the timeline that they have set, where they could have decided this long ago, is one that really deals with the trial date, which is not Mm -hmm. in front of them. And, you know, I hope that Neil is right, that there ultimately is a trial. Um, you know, before the election, but they have certainly put that prospect in grave doubt.
1: It's such an important point, Andrew, as you explain it, just to hear. I mean, they're weighing in on the trial, the timing of this trial by, by doing this. And I had never thought about it that way. So, you Neil, know, let, let's get into that, because federal prosecutor Nkash Cordori who you've both done TV with, I think, makes the case in Politico that Trump's election trial can start before November, as it should, but he says it will fall to Judge Chutkin to make some difficult choices with no real precedent. This kind of goes to the power and decision-making of judges. I mean, knowing what you know about Judge Chutkin, how do you think she'll handle—I mean, there's the timetable, the pressure from everyone once the Supreme Court rules.
4: Yeah. So just to pick up on what Andrew said, Jen, there's kind of two issues. One is the merits of the appeal before the Supreme Court. Does a president have absolute immunity for criminal acts? That's preposterous. There's no way Donald Trump is going to win that. But the second thing is Andrew says is the timing that they've taken mm-hmm. such a long, slow walk that Maybe it does, that the court is effectively going to rule for Donald Trump by just slow walking the case and running out the clock before the election. And what that piece argues and what I believe is that the Supreme Court, and you heard Congressman Raskin say it, should decide the case quickly after April 22nd. The mm-hmm. congressman said April 23rd. I think that might be a little aggressive, but certainly the first week of May. And mm-hmm. then it goes to Judge Chutkin who does have the ability to schedule this trial, and Judge Cannon, of course, in the other case, uh, before the election. I mean, Judge Shutkin has said she'd like to give Donald Trump 88 days for trial prep, but she said that a long time ago before Trump had all this extra time by dint of this absolute immunity appeal that he's made. So that's one actor that could speed things up. And the other actor is Jack Smith, who had said the trial may take two to three months, but he said that again a long time ago, and he could shorten it and make it four weeks, the presentation evidence move more quickly, and the like. So it is still possible. For the trial to occur before the election. Indeed, I think it's an imperative in our democracy that it happens. But I very much share Andrew's concern that the slow walking by the Supreme Court makes that more difficult.
1: Made it that more difficult. Neil Katyal, Andrew Weissman, thank you so much. As always, I expect we'll be hearing a lot more from both of you over the coming days. I'll look forward to it. And coming up, President Biden and Donald Trump visit the border on the same day, creating quite a split-screen moment with completely different messages. I'll just say Trump's efforts to rebrand his racism are something we should all be paying attention to. Former Congressman Beto O'Rourke is standing by with his reaction after a quick break. This week, President Biden and Donald Trump both visited the southern border. They did it on the same day. And it had turned into one of those split-screen moments. And watching it unfold, I was struck by the fact that these trips were not at all about their policy differences. I mean, when Trump killed a bipartisan border deal negotiated by a conservative Republican with a lot of what they wanted, it was pretty clear he didn't actually care about solving the real issues at the border. For him, this issue isn't about policy. It's about fear. Fear of the other, of anyone who appears different in any way from the overwhelmingly white MAGA base. And this is nothing new for Trump. He's been running on this message since 2015. But this time, he's actually rebranding his racism.
4: Biden migrant crime. It's a new form of uh, vicious violation to our country. We have a new category of crime in our country. It's called migrant crime. Biden migrant crime crime. But it's too long. So we just call it migrant crime. It's called migrant crime. And it's gonna be worse than any other form of crime.
1: We call it migrant crime. I come I came up with that name because I come up with a lot of good names, don't I? Migrant crime. I mean, like he's unveiling a new product, by the way. That's how he's pitching it. And like the rest of his failed business ventures, we know that Donald Trump likes to make claims, even when he might know that they are false. He's got a long history of that. This so-called migrant crime wave is just not happening. It's a lie. An NBC News analysis released just this week found that crime has actually dropped in the cities that received the most migrants from the southern border. Sorry, Trump, your product is a little sketchy. But for Trump, this issue has never been about the facts. It's about fanning fear. And unfortunately, it might be working a bit. According to the latest Gallup poll, Americans are most likely to say that immigration is the most important problem today, even more than the economy and inflation. So, where does that leave us? And what should Democrats be doing about it? Joining me now is former Democratic Congressman from Texas, Bid O'Rourke, who's thought about this a lot, talked about it, spoken out about it a lot. So, I want to start by just getting your thoughts on this description by Trump at, of Trump at the border. And this is what he's, he said Mr. Trump cast himself as a battle tested leader ready to fend off an invasion by hordes of fighting age men who look like warriors. I mean, that's quite a description. He's describing essentially where you live, where you've represented. What do you make of him describing border communities that way, essentially like a war zone?
5: You know, El Paso, Texas, where I am from, has consistently been one of the safest cities in America, if not the safest city in America some years in America some years And that is not in spite of the fact that we are a city of immigrants. I would argue it is because we are a city of immigrants. But with the kind of rhetoric that you're repeating that Donald Trump has used, he's incited so much hatred and so much violence. And we saw that in 2019 in El Paso, when someone echoing Trump's rhetoric came to our community, walked into a Walmart and slaughtered 23 people in a matter of minutes, claiming that he was repelling the invasion of Hispanics Mm -hmm. who were trying to take over the state of Texas. It's a reminder of the cruelty and chaos that we saw under Trump. In addition to the El Paso shooting, we had the Muslim ban. We had family separation. We had kids in cages. And he did nothing to address the real issues at the border or to make the most of the opportunities we have with immigration. And as you pointed out, he's also just blown up the border security deal that very conservative Republican members of the Senate negotiated with President Biden accepting almost everyone of the Mm -hmm. planks of their platform. And then he's also telling us what he's going to do if he's reelected and serves a second term. He's talking about immigrants poisoning the blood of America. That's a a line that could be lifted out of Mein Kampf. He's talking about uh, mass deportations and raids and detention centers, these Gestapo tactics to instill even more fear, even more hatred, and even more violence. And I think the president is doing a good job of reminding America of the danger of Donald Trump. But there's one more thing, Jen, that I think that President Biden can do, and I really think he should do, and that is to remind this country of who we are at our best. We are a country of immigrants. We are the most powerful, the most successful place on the planet, and that has a lot to do with those who've come here from all over the world. To do better for themselves, yes, but also to do better for all of us, and we will only remain the most successful country on the planet by ensuring that we have more immigrants coming here. I think finding safe, legal, orderly pathways for people to come here and work some of the millions of jobs that are currently going unfilled to be able to join their families to strengthen and renew our communities. That's a positive for America fighting for those dreamers, making sure that they're citizens and absolutely unleashing their potential and then finding a pathway to citizenship for the millions of undocumented here who are already contributing so much to our economy, working some of the toughest jobs in America. Imagine what they could do if they were legal citizens in this country. I'd to see him make that case. And I know the polls might be pointing in a different direction, but leaders don't follow polls. They, they lead this country and help shape public opinion. And the so, president, through the bully pulpit, has an extraordinary opportunity to do that right now. And I think that's the best possible contrast to Donald Trump.
1: That's such an interesting point. And I wanted to ask you about this because it feels to me, and you live in a border community, like the messaging has changed um, on, on immigration. It has become an issue that is now, led by security threats and not by the humanity side and not by the morality side. And it sounds like you're saying we need to hear more of that, too. But I also wanted to ask you about, I mean, immigration is now the the number not in every poll. Every poll can be different, but it is an issue that is top of mind for the country right now. Do you think that is because of politics, because of fear mongering, because of policy issues? What do you what do you attribute that to?
5: I think it has a lot to do with fear mongering and politics. On an issue like the economy or inflation, it's, it's very hard to spin what people are feeling. We know how much a gallon of milk costs or what it costs to fill up the tank in our car. You, you can't really trick us or confuse us on that. But unless you are an immigrant or you live in a city like El Paso or you have a daily encounter with an immigrant, immigration is really something that you are told how to feel about. So Donald Trump is telling you that there's an invasion. He's telling you that there are animals and infestation, criminals, rapists, people coming to attack you. He's talking about this in military terms. And I really think he is successfully, unfortunately, shaping public opinion on this issue. That's why it is so important for President Biden to stand tall on this issue and say, hold on a second. Immigrants are part of what makes this country so extraordinary and so great. You know, we're not doing them a favor by ensuring that there's a legal pathway for them to come here. They're gonna supercharge our economy. They're gonna be paying into social security and Medicare to make sure those programs are solvent into the next century. And they're absolutely gonna renew the greatness of this country. I think this is the perfect contrast for the president to strike. I fear that if he does not do that, and he's only talking about security or shutting the border down, if voters are choosing between someone who is absolutely made his name on his cruelty and security bona fides, at least in terms of what he says he will do, although he's failed to do that in Donald Trump, and someone who's doing a lighter version of that in President Biden, I don't think we're gonna win that one. But if President Biden can say, listen, security is dependent on on legal pathways to come here. Folks are going to try to come to America. Let's make sure they do it the right way. As president, I'm going to lead on that now. And in my second administration, I will, for the first time since Ronald Reagan, make comprehensive immigration reform my number one priority and finally get this done for America.
1: Lots to security is important, morality is important, humanity is important. All of it is wrapped up. I know he feels that way. Really important um, guidance from you on all of that. Thank you so much, Beto Work, for joining us uh, this afternoon. And coming up, as Mitch McConnell announces his plans to step aside as the Senate's Republican leader, we'll take a look at his legacy and the MAGA monster he helped create. We've been working on this all, one all week, and it's coming up next. As you all know, this week, Mitch McConnell announced that he would step down from leadership later this year, ending his tenure as the longest-serving Senate leader in history, which makes now the perfect moment to take a bit of a deep dive into his legacy, and specifically his unwavering devotion to winning and winning at any cost. Now, back in the 1970s, he was publicly supportive of campaign finance reform. I know, denouncing the cancer of the corrupting influence of money in politics, only to do a complete 180 in the U.S. Senate, where he became instrumental in opening up our politics to the flood of special interest dark money. Once upon a time, McConnell was also ostensibly a defender of the Voting Rights Act. In a 2006 floor speech, he urged senators to renew what he called landmark legislation.
3: Members of
5: Congress realize that this is a piece of legislation that has worked. And one of my favorite sayings that many of us use from time to time is, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. This landmark piece of legislation will continue to make a difference, uh, not only in the South, but for all of America.
1: And yet, McConnell has blocked all attempts to rebuild the law after conservatives on the Supreme Court, of course, gutted portions in 2013. That includes the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, a bill that reestablishes some of the rules that were in place before the court's 2013 decision something that McConnell was once for, but now calls unnecessary. Now, if you understand McConnell's cynical drive to win above all else, this all adds up. He was for campaign finance reform before he realized that opposing it would mean raising far more unrestricted money, and that could politically be helpful to him. He was for voting rights until he realized that suppressing the vote might help Republicans win elections. And there is no better example of his relentless pursuit of power than what happened in 2016 when for 11 months he stonewalled the appointment of a new Supreme Court justice under Barack Obama. He cited brand new, fabricated, by the way, reasoning, saying the American people should have a voice in the selection of their next Supreme Court justice. Sounds good, but that didn't last long. Fast forward just a couple years to 2020, when he flipped on his own McConnell role to Russian Amy Coney Barrett into the court just weeks before the election. Because it's never been about sticking with principles for him. It's been about power. And despite Donald Trump's obvious ineptitude and moral deficiencies, McConnell saw him as a means to an end. A Republican president who could fill federal courts with conservatives with the crown jewel of a supermajority on the Supreme Court. He got that. But here's the thing. McConnell racked up all those wins while supporting and building up a man that he despises and knows is destructive because he always saw Trump as a means to an end. After the January 6th attack on the Capitol, McConnell reportedly said that he felt exhilarated by the fact that Trump had totally discredited himself. But despite publicly saying Trump bore responsibility for the attack, McConnell voted to acquit him. He calculated that Trump and the MAGA movement were done, that his party wouldn't move past them. He was obviously very, very wrong. Donald Trump will likely be the presidential nominee again, and the Republican apparatus is unquestionably fully backing him. The conservative Supreme Court that McConnell helped engineer even gave Trump a big gift this week by pushing back the calendar on his federal election trial. And so Mitch McConnell, once arguably the most powerful figure in in the Republican Party, is leaving his post as Republican Senate leader diminished. That's apparent from the lack of action on new Ukraine aid, despite his insistence and his inability to keep his conference together to pass a bipartisan border bill, which tanked at the behest of Donald Trump. And yet, despite all that, McConnell thinks about Trump, which we know. He's already said that if he is the Republican nominee, he will support him. And that's the real legacy of Mitch McConnell, a cynic focused on power, only to be swallowed by the monster that he enabled to obtain it. We've got one more thing to tell you about before we go today, a little hint, it involves the newest member of Congress. We're back after a quick break.
4: Mr. Speaker, on the night of my election victory, I promised the people of Long Island and Queens I would deliver a simple message to this chamber. Wake up! The people are sick and tired of the finger pointing and the petty partisan bickering. They want us to work together.
1: That was newly elected Congressman Tom Swazi, who just won a crucial special election in New York to replace none other than George Santos. And I'm very excited that I'll be getting to talk to him tomorrow night, right here at 8 p.m. Eastern. It will be the congressman's first MSNBC interview since being sworn in. So we'll see you tomorrow at 8. For now, stay right where you are, because there's much more news coming up on MSNBC.